What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Trump and Iran, of course, with Andrew Basevich. Also, a bit of history. A documentary on Joe McCarthy opened the 32nd season of the PBS series American Experience on Monday, January 6th. McCarthy, of course, was the all-powerful Republican senator in the early 50s who was, as one commentator describes him, willing to assert things that he knew were not true, and he did it with aplomb. That sounds familiar. Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker and the Columbia University faculty will comment. Plus, Henry Louis Gates uncovers revealing family histories on the PBS series Finding Your Roots. On this season's premiere, Angelica Houston learned that one of her ancestors who died in Maryland in 1811 was a slave owner and that, as Will said, that after he died, his, quote, four slave children should be freed. We'll talk with Henry Louis Gates about that and about his other guests on this season of Finding Your Roots later in this hour. First up, we have to talk about Trump and Iran. And for that, we're lucky to have as our guest Andrew Basevich. Of course, he's Professor Emeritus of History and International Relations at Boston University and president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's also a frequent contributor to The Nation and to Tom Dispatch. In his new book, The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory, will be published on January 20th. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, Trump's Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, announced that the assassination of Iran's top general, Qasem Soleimani, at Baghdad's airport on Friday shows that, quote, the game has changed, close quote. Is that the way you see it? The United States has been playing a game, not simply with Iran, but has been playing a game in this region, going back at least to 9-11. I would say going back probably all the way back to Jimmy Carter's enunciation of the Carter Doctrine back in 1980. And that game 
is a game that has assumed that the United States can use its military power to sort out the Middle East. Now, what, what we mean by sorting out has, has changed over time. You know, for a time, we thought we were going to spread democracy. For a time, we thought we were going to eliminate terrorism. For a time, we thought we were going to restore order. And what strikes me is that there has never been any evidence uh, that that game is going to end in success. And in my view, uh, this assassination is really just going to perpetuate that failure. Well, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo emphasized on the Sunday talk shows that Soleimani was, quote, a bad guy responsible for American deaths all over the Mideast, one of the key sources of military support for the Assad regime in Syria. Trump supporters ask, isn't the death of a bad guy a good thing? What do you think? Well, I think looking at, the, looking at Soleimani simply from an American perspective, of course he's a bad guy uh, because he, he was a, a major factor in, in killing lots of Americans. On the other hand, I think referring to, in, in a political sense, from a political perspective, to categorize people as bad guys or good guys is simply not helpful at all. And it, it creates a moral context that is, I think, misleading. And if we look at uh, the role that the United States military has played in that part of the world over the past 20, 30, 40 years, I, I don't know who the good guys are and the bad guys. I mean, if we look at what is, in many respects, the pivotal moment of this entire narrative, which was the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, in my estimation, illegal, in almost anybody's estimation, reckless in the extreme. Does that make George W. Bush a bad guy? Uh, again, and some, some people may think so, but it just strikes me that that kind of categorization is not, is not helpful. It's a distraction. So at the time of this assassination, Iran was not violating the nuclear agreement that it made with the big countries of the world. Iran has been the mortal enemy of the Taliban and other jihadist groups. It's the enemy of al-Qaeda. It's the enemy of the Islamic State. So what is Trump's strategy regarding Iran? Well, there's an assumption in your and your question that I would uh, myself question is whether or not he has a strategy. Yes. Uh, it, it does seem that this is another example of the president acting impetuously. We see no indications that the president or any of his uh, senior advisors thought seriously about the consequences of this action. You know, what, 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 what's going to come next? Uh, how, how, in the long term, does assassinating this Iranian general uh, advance the interests of the United States of America. So it's a, it's, it's a baffling uh, act on the president's part, although one has to say that it's in, in character with the president's behavior where he has repeatedly uh, made these snap decisions that leave everybody's scratch in their head. So on the one hand, it seems impetuous and like a snap decision. On the other hand, it is something that he has talked about over and over again in the context of criticizing Barack Obama. He tweeted dozens of times that he believed Obama 
would start a war with Iran to, quote, save face, and because Obama's, quote, poll numbers are in a tailspin, and because Obama needed to, quote, get reelected. So as Michelle Goldberg points out to Trump, this kind of wag-the-dog war with Iran seemed like a natural move for a president in trouble. I wonder if you agree with that. Well, it's a plausible argument, but we really get into the realm of trying to read this guy's mind. It, it seems to me that one could, one could make a pretty strong case that uh, all presidents in making decisions about foreign policy, making decisions, particularly those that relate to the use of force, always do so uh, with domestic political considerations uh, in mind. Yes. Uh, so, so, yeah, they may well have been a factor here, yes, but uh, I don't know that we have any hard evidence, and we'll never probably get hard evidence, to prove that this was a, a wag-the-tail episode. Well, let's talk about the Democrats in Congress. They're promising to act this week to limit Trump's ability to unilaterally order military action against Iran. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called last week's drone airstrike killing Soleimani, quote, provocative and disproportionate. She said it, quote, endangered our service members, diplomats, and others by risking a serious escalation of tensions with Iran, close quote. Uh, She said the House will vote later this week on a resolution under the War Powers Act to prevent Trump from acting against Iran after 30 days unless Congress votes to authorize further military operations. Do you have any comment on the Democrats as the barrier to Trump going to war here? Well, I mean, I would applaud that action. I mean, unfortunately, to be effective, that that legislation would have to uh, pass both houses. Trump would veto it, and then it'd have to pass with a veto-proof majority, none of of which is going to happen. But more broadly, uh, if indeed the Democrats are, are serious about beginning to curb the president's uh, war-making powers, that has to be to the good. I hope it's not simply uh, informed by partisan consideration, because let's, let's face it, Trump is not the only person, only president, who has uh, abused his authority as commander-in-chief, at least in my judgment. You know, we are all rightly appalled by this assassination, but we ought to remind ourselves that it was Barack Obama who made assassination sort of a regular instrument of U.S. policy. He had a procedure in the White House uh, to identify uh, victims, and he would sign off on who who we're going to kill next. So we've gone down this path toward assassination. I say we, I mean the national security establishment to include both parties. I think it's it's incredibly uh, misguided and dangerous. And if this becomes the occasion to begin to walk that back, that would be good. In your op-ed in the L.A. Times, you reminded us about the Afghanistan papers published last month by the Washington Post. They seem relevant to any discussion of U.S. policy in the Mideast, but they seem to have been forgotten already. That's my uh, sense. I mean, uh, I guess it's a tribute to the short attention span of the establishment in Washington. I mean, one could say it's understandable uh, that the Afghanistan paper story sort of got uh, stomped on uh, by uh, subsequent events, but I think it's deeply unfortunate 
because the Afghanistan papers were were quite revealing, and again, not revealing about misjudgments or misbehavior by one particular president or one particular party. What they showed was a pattern of dishonesty and a pattern of incompetence and mismanagement that has, you know, run throughout this throughout that particular war, and, and frankly, you probably could make the same argument with regard to the Iraq war or, or other uh, post-9-11 interventions. So that was an opportunity to really take stock about the, the impact, the implication, the results of this tension for military intervention, and I fear that that opportunity is, is going to be lost because the Afghanistan papers have already been filed away in some filing cabinet, you know, interesting, but uh, but not interesting enough to take seriously. And on another front, the Iraqi parliament voted on Sunday to expel the 5,000 American troops that remain in their country. Uh, this comes after the United States has lost thousands of American lives fighting in Iraq, after the U.S. has spent hundreds of billions of dollars on this war there. Now American citizens are being urged to evacuate Iraq and Iran and to lie low elsewhere in the region. My understanding is that the withdrawal of American forces from Iraq has been the primary goal of Iran for the last decade. So does this mean that Iraq has now been effectively, we might say, lost to Iran? Well, I don't, I don't know that they've been lost to Iran. I mean, the, to me, the significance of the parliament's actions was that it was, I mean, if, if, if Iraq qualifies as a sovereign state, and I say if because, you know, a, a country that hosts various militias, you know, basically private armies, a country that is riven with corruption. We can question how sovereign it really is. But if we want to categorize Iraq as a sovereign state, first of all, we grossly violated their sovereignty with this assassination. And secondly, if they order us to leave the country, that is their prerogative to do so. Apparently, there was some general in the Pentagon who drafted a letter that said something to the effect okay, if we're not wanted, we'll leave. That letter leaked and was almost immediately disowned by higher authorities in the Pentagon. But it does suggest that there's some thought floating around the corridors of the Pentagon uh, that the Iraqi parliament's invitation to leave might be something worth thinking about. You know, I, I, I don't know a lot about President Trump's business career, but as I understand it, one of his particular characteristics is that when he when he found himself in a losing position owning for example casinos in Atlantic City that he he was quick to cut his losses matter of fact he he found ways to cut his losses and to stick somebody else uh, with with the cause and I wonder uh, if it doesn't occur to Trump that this act by the Iraqi parliament, is indeed a chance for him to cut his losses, remembering that one of his central campaign promises uh, back in 2016, repeated innumerable times since, is that he is going to end our endless wars. Now, if you look at the Soleimani assassination, you say, that's not a guy who's trying to end our endless wars. But the Iraqi parliament 
may actually be giving him an opportunity to do just that. I see no signs that he's actually going to do that, but you have to you have to wonder if the thought hasn't occurred to him. Andrew Basevich wrote about Trump's Suleimani strike for the L.A. Times. He's a regular contributor to The Nation and to Tom Dispatch. His new book, The Age of Illusions, will be published January 20th. Andrew Basevich, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you. Now it's time to talk with Henry Louis Gates Jr. about the surprising stories buried within families. We're talking, of course, about the PBS show Finding Your Roots. The host is the Alphonse Fletcher University professor at Harvard University and also the director of the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute for African and African American Research at Harvard. Henry Louis Gates, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, John. It's a great honor to be on your, your podcast. I love it. Well, thank you. First of all, I have to thank you for that interview you did with the New York Times Book Review, where they asked if you could require the president to read one book, what would it be? And what was your answer? (laughs) Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois and The History of Reconstruction by Eric Foner. And I believe you also mentioned specifically the sections on the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. (laughs) That might have been a bit wicked on my part, but (laughs) I did. And, you know, Eric was so, who's one of the greatest historians alive, was so moved that I mentioned him and his book in relationship to W.E.B. Du Bois's classic Black Reconstruction that he wrote me one of the most moving emails that I've ever received. He said he just wished his parents were alive to see his name and his work associated in the same sentence Mm. with their hero, W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm. And I was profoundly moved by that. Du Du Bois undertook a corrective against the racist aspersions cast on black achievement during uh, Reconstruction, by a group of professors, historians, led by Professor Dunning at Columbia. Yeah. And Eric, and and he has this great um, uh, critique of their work called on the propaganda, uh, the propaganda of history, showing that uh, the work that historians uh, do is not objective account of what happened. It's ideologically based. It's infected by politics but from angle point of view and it's clear that the subtext for the dunning school's account of reconstruction was a justification for jim crow segregation Uh, they wanted to show that giving black men the right to vote had been a mistake they had been incompetent they were venal lascivious all they wanted to do was pass laws (laughs) uh, authorizing miscegenation they were corrupt they were bribed and this just wasn't true, but but they sanctioned political prejudice and racist ideology under the rubric of history. So Du Bois took them on in 1935 with this massive work called Black Reconstruction, and that began to change the narrative. And that arc of narrative transformation, interpretive transformation, reached its peak when Eric Foner wrote his 
what I call the Bible of Reconstruction. <laughs> and so when I decided uh, that I wanted to do a documentary on Reconstruction, I knew that the way in was guarded by <laughs> Eric Foder. Mm-hmm. And so I called him and I said, I want you to be not only our chief historical advisor, but I want you to be my partner with my, my co-executive producer, Dylan McGee. So it's really our four-hour series, Dylan's, Eric's, and mine. And we just got the marvelous news before Christmas that we've won the um, Alfred DuPont Columbia Award for Documentary for Reconstruction. So in a sense, we've come full circle from the the Dunning School uh, at the beginning of the century, which was trying to undermine Reconstruction, to Du Bois's critique of the Dunning School, to Eric Foner, who is the, the, the dominant professor of history at Columbia on Reconstruction. And now the Columbia University has just given us a, the DuPont Award for our critique of the Dunning School. <laughs> Congratulations. Listeners will remember Eric Foner was our guest talking about the PBS series that you hosted on Reconstruction. And Congratulations on the DuPont Prize for that. But today, today we want to talk about the new season of Finding Your Roots. This is season six, and I'd like to start by talking about the premiere, which featured Isabella Rossellini, Mia Farrow, and Angelica Houston, children of Hollywood royalty. You had a stunning discovery about Angelica Houston's ancestors, Tell us about her fifth great-grandfather who died in Maryland in 1811, and you found his will. What did it say? It was one of the most astonishing stories that we've ever uncovered. Uh, That and her DNA. So let me talk about her her direct ancestor, then we'll talk about what her DNA revealed. We found the will of this ancestor, and he manumitted, he said, his slaves and slave people that he owned because he admitted they were his children. Mm. He had fathered them. And that means that Angelica has fourth great grand uncles and that they were uh, Angelica's fourth great grand uncles and aunts, and that she has cousins of direct African descent walking around in the United States today. She was flabbergasted. <laughs> she, she had no idea that she'd had any ancestor who owned a slave, and certainly no idea that she might have cousins of African descent. And the ancestor listed the names of his slave children who were going to be freed when they reached 30 years old, You asked Angelica Houston to read aloud from the will the names of the slave children who are her relatives. That was a stunning moment of television. Oh, uh, thank you. I was so deeply moved. Her fifth great-grandfather's name was Andrew Smith. And we went through his estate records, and we found that document freeing four of his slaves because he says they were his children. Now... John, a a little uh, genetics 101 here. Okay. The average African-American, think of all the African-Americans you know. There is no African-American virtually. Uh, You can never say never, never say none, but there are almost no African-Americans have been tested by any of the major DNA companies who are 100% sub-Saharan African or 100% black. 
the average African-American is 24% white or European in their genome. That's incredible. Well, where did that European ancestry come from? It came from slavery. But here's the difference between the white ancestors of most of us and Angelica's fifth great grandfather. The white ancestors, most of us did not admit it, did not have pangs about it, did not have a conscience about it, uh, did not manumit their slaves because of it. But Andrew Smith did. And extraordinarily, we were able to find this document and tell her that she has half fourth great granduncles and aunts who were enslaved people. And that means if we trace their their descendants forward, that she could have one grand family reunion <laughs> of, uh, comprised of African-Americans. And in terms of her DNA, we also found out that she was 2.7% Ashkenazi Jewish. And she had no idea that she had any Jewish ancestry. And one of the, the fun features of our show is to connect the guest with any other guest who's been in the series in our database, and that's about 200 people, with whom they might share long identical segments of DNA. If you share long identical segments of DNA with another person, this is not random. It means that if we had your family tree ideally populated and that person's family tree ideally populated, there would be one person who was the same on the family tree, that you would descend from a person in common. And Angelica Houston's DNA cousins are, you ready for this? Bernie Sanders and Larry David. (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly first cousins, but they're there. Yeah, not exactly first cousins, but really cousins in the last couple hundred years. So they would descend from a common ancestor. That's that's quite remarkable. Since you are the public face of DNA testing for family history— I wonder if we could talk about Elizabeth Warren for a minute and the way Trump mocked her as Pocahontas for claiming Cherokee heritage. So she went out and got a DNA test and released a video that looked a little bit like your show. But instead of you, there was a Stanford University geneticist, Carlos Mm -hmm. Bustamante, who told her on camera that, quote, the facts suggest that you absolutely have a Native American ancestor in your pedigree, close quote. It seemed like she was maybe 132nd Native American. This had been part of her family history that she'd been told by her parents. And she said, quote, I'm proud of my Native American heritage, close quote. It's widely regarded now as her biggest political mistake what do you think about that whole business? First of all, Elizabeth Warren is my colleague at Harvard. She's a professor at the law school, and I consider her a friend and a person I admire enormously. And I also have worked closely with Carlos Bustamante, who is a leading uh, geneticist at Stanford University. Stanford has one of the great genetics departments in the world. And we have um, turned to Carlos many times for analysis of guests with significant Native American ancestry. Uh, So I didn't see the video because I was busy making, finding your roots. (laughs) But but if Carlos Bustamante, there's no question about the quality of his scholarship. Well, of course, the biggest problem was not with the DNA. It was with the Cherokees who quickly made it clear that 
a DNA test is not the basis of determining tribal citizenship. Uh, for that, yes. you have to have it been enrolled in the some historical documents. You're absolutely right that the Cherokee are one of the most well-documented and self-regulating of the Native American tribes. They have been rigorous about tracking descendants. They've established their own rules for determining who is a descendant of a Cherokee person and, and who's not. One more question about DNA. Our colleagues in academia, I'm sure you know, have argued for a while now that race is not a biological fact. It's a cultural construct, and the reliance on DNA reinforces discredited ideas about racial purity, which are now being revived by the white supremacists. Some have criticized you and this show for undermining the idea that race is a cultural construct. I'm sure you're familiar with this argument. Um, most humanists haven't taken a course in biology in a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, very, and very few of my colleagues outside of biology and genetics, say at Harvard, actually have read a text about modern genetics. A DNA test, an admixture test, deconstructs the essentialized notions of race that we inherited from the 18th century, from the Enlightenment. It shows that we're all mixed, that when no matter what the law was in the, the, the day, at night everybody was sleeping with everybody else. There is no such thing as racial purity. My goal is, just as in my um, literary criticism, has always been to deconstruct racist notions, essentialized notion of race. And that is precisely what we're doing through the most sophisticated DNA analysis. It shows that we are 99.9% .9 the same, no matter what our pheno phenotypical differences are, and that we all descend from common ancestors in Africa. You can't make a, uh, two more radical scientific claims than that. It is a very, very sophisticated science, and it is important for humanists and historians to understand the wonderful things that we can learn about the evolution of the human community through DNA rather than attempting uh, mistakenly to throw the baby out with the bath. Well, I'm sorry we're out of time. Henry Louis Gates is the host of Finding Your Roots on PBS. The theme this week on Finding Your Roots is Homecomings, and the guests are Sterling K. Brown, Shasir Zamata, and John Batiste. New episodes on PBS Tuesdays at 8, 7 Central. Thank you, Henry Louis Gates. This was terrific. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And keep up the great work. Republican demagogue running on fear and lies, a stunning victory in an election no one thought he could win. We're not talking about Donald Trump, but rather about Joseph McCarthy. The senator from Wisconsin, who was first elected in 1947, is the subject of a new documentary on the PBS series American Experience, premiering Monday, January 6th. For comment and analysis, we turn to Jelani Cobb. He's professor of journalism at Columbia University, an author and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Jelani Cobb, welcome. Thank you. 
The American Experience documentary suggests that McCarthy did have a model, and that was Richard Nixon, who was a congressman from Southern California and a member of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Nixon made his name by going after Alger Hiss with a House Committee. Do you think that is sort of the direct uh, inspiration for Joseph McCarthy? Sure. Yeah, but I think that there's a, a kind of key difference in that McCarthy created a kind of tabloid effect to this and the manipulation of mass media and the hurling of uh, unfounded allegations against the most unlikely sources and a kind of like it's it's weird to think of Richard Nixon in this regard, but almost you know Nixon is more principled and constrained. <laughs> um, the other kind of element of this is the House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, which is also much more powerful and much more influential than than in terms of what happens to day-to-day people and McCarthyism, probably more influential than McCarthy ever was. Uh, and so he looks at all those sources and, and recognizes you know, where uh, the path to political viability is. Well, these days, of course, when we think of Joe McCarthy, we think of Donald Trump. And of course, there is one direct link between the two of them, Roy Cohn. Yeah. And, 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 and quite frankly, if you look at uh, a certain portion of Donald Trump's rhetoric, it really seems strikingly McCarthyite, uh, as if it could have just been lifted from the uh, senator's rhetoric and, and dropped into a, a Word document that Donald Trump was <laughs> reciting, particularly in his demonization of the press. McCarthy uh, had the same sort of symbiotic relationship to the media that, uh, that Donald Trump has, in which he both denounces them and speaks ill of them and accuses them of being biased. But at the same time, he really relies on them to get his message out to a broader audience than it would otherwise. At the same time, media members know they're being consistently attacked by McCarthy and you could say Donald Trump in a more modern context, but then recognize that he is good copy. You know, if you put McCarthy's name on a headline, people pick up that newspaper. And so there's a kind of built-in conflict of interest in terms of how that relationship works. And when you see Donald Trump's relationship to the media, it is a a kind of one-to-one parallel uh, to what uh, Joseph McCarthy was doing in the 1950s. In addition to that, um, you know, Roy Cohn, uh, who, you know, was McCarthy's uh, most trusted aide and you know, strategist and you know, kind of sounding board for his ideas, uh, mentored the young Donald Trump. And one of the things that have been attributed to Cohn's influence over Trump is this relentless sense of uh, always going on the attack, never uh, apologizing, uh, never giving, countenancing the idea of being mistaken or wrong, um, which is something that's very much akin to McCarthy's political personality as well. And one other thing I noticed in the the American Experience documentary says that Joseph McCarthy was, quote, intoxicated by media attention, close quote. That sounds like our current president, don't you think? Sure. I mean, well, I mean, we have to, with McCarthy, you have to use the word intoxicated advisedly <laughs> oh, because yes. sometimes he was just intoxicated. Yes. Um, and, and, and also uh, intoxicated by media attention. So it was coming from both sources. But yeah, there's a kind of 
of narcissism and addiction to public attention, which is not entirely uncommon if you're dealing with politicians or people in elected office. But I think that what makes both of them stand out is the extremity of it. Well, the way the story is told, it was the news media that stood up to McCarthy and played a crucial role in bringing him down. One man in particular, Edward R. Murrow of CBS News, who said on his TV show, we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. Do we have an Edward R. Murrow today? I don't know, Rachel Maddow? Yeah, I think that that's been the comparison that people have made. But I think there's a difference there, which is that Murrow was work, was working in a medium that, that McCarthy didn't really understand. Yeah. Uh, and so when they broadcast the Army McCarthy hearings, he didn't realize how belligerent and bullying and uh, inebriated uh, he looked. He didn't get how people were perceiving him as they were seeing him uh, in their living rooms. Uh, and so that really was part of what did him in, uh, in terms of his public standing. On the other side of this, uh, Trump is a product of tabloid television and reality TV. And so this is not an unfamiliar medium. The other is that uh, the trust that people had in the media in the middle of the 20th century, far higher than you know the amount of trust that people have in the media right now. And given that Rachel Maddow is you know, identified as publicly a kind of progressive left figure, there's a whole part of the American political spectrum that can't hear anything she has to say. Uh, and so I don't know that there's a figure that is the equivalent of uh, Edward R. Murrow in the modern context. And the other key critical voice the story is told uh, came from the Army McCarthy hearings where the chief counsel for the Army was an attorney named Joseph Welch who asked McCarthy this famous question, have you no sense of decency, sir? It's it's a great line, and it certainly was appropriate, but it's a little hard today to explain to young people why this would bring down the previously invincible Joseph McCarthy. How do you explain it? There's a couple of contexts to that about Joseph Welch. Um, you know, him asking McCarthy, have you no decency, really was uh, the final blow. What he had done and you know the preceding uh, hours and days had been to dismantle McCarthy methodically, uh, and I think there's one lesson that is valuable in terms of understanding how uh, demagogic authoritarian figures who universally take themselves very seriously uh, what their uh, Achilles heel is, and that is that Welch wielded humor tremendously well against Joseph McCarthy, where McCarthy used kind of bluster and anger and shouting. Welch was composed and kind of ridiculing him and, and you know, poking jokes, humor at him. Uh, and so th- he didn't really know how to handle that. And I think that in some ways that's the, the best cure, uh, which is that the people who are of the same sort of temperament and disposition as Trump cannot tolerate being laughed at uh, whatsoever. And maybe the point is not to fight fire with fire, but to fight it with water. Last question. Uh, Today, McCarthyism is a universal term of, of criticism. McCarthy has virtually no defenders, except maybe on the far right. 
10 or 20 years from now, do you think Trump will be looked at the way we now look at Joe McCarthy, or will he be seen as somebody more like Reagan by historians? I don't think he'll be Reagan. I also don't think he'll be McCarthy. Um, And so I think that the hold that he has and the way that he has been able to mainstream xenophobia, racism, misogyny, uh, Islamophobia, a whole kind of bouquet of horrible ideas. I think that people will be in too much denial to admit what that actually was. And there'll be an attempt to rehabilitate him. The, the difference, I think, is that his record is so extensive. And there are the tens of thousands of tweets mainstreaming all sorts of vile ideas that it will be difficult to do that. As long as I think historians do their job, uh, it won't be possible to uh, present a kind and gentle and noble version of Donald Trump to posterity. Jelani Cobb is a participant in the new documentary titled simply McCarthy. It's on the PBS series American Experience, premiering Monday, January 6th. You can also see it at pbs.org and on the PBS video app. Jelani Cobb, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. (laughs) 